unto thee, O Lord. Do I lift up my soul unto thee, O Lord? Do I lift up my soul?
each of you to our services. Uh, there's a threat of rain out there, isn't it? Wouldn't it be wonderful to get a quick shower or so? We'll have to see how that turns out. Uh, but we're glad you're here tonight. If you are visiting with us and we do have guests, thank you for coming. And uh, we hope that you'll come back not only on a night like tonight, but be with us on Wednesday night at 7 and on Sunday morning at 9.30. We'd love to see you then. Just a couple of reminders. Uh, the Wheeler Lake boat cruise is this coming Friday, July the 7th. We have at least one opening right now that I know of, one opening. And if that would be something that would be interesting for you, uh, just let me know, okay? The bus is gonna leave at 7.30. Also, we want to remind the ladies of the baby girl shower in honor of Laura Galloway. That's next Sunday, July the 9th from 1.30 until three in the annex. That's all the announcements that I have. Will you bow with me in a word of prayer? Our Heavenly Father, we're so thankful to you for this day, for all that you do for us. The many blessings that you shower upon us, Father, we're truly grateful and thankful. For those that are sick, that have had a, a, a measure of good health, Father, that they're recovering, we're so thankful for that. We also pray for others, Father, as they are under the care of doctors. We pray that you'll bless them. Please be with those who've lost loved ones, and we pray that you would bless them and comfort them in their grief. Father, please be with us in our Bible study tonight. Uh, may we try to open up our hearts and minds to your word and apply it to our lives. Father, we're thankful for all that you continue to do for us, and it's in your son's name that we pray. Amen. Our song leader is gone tonight that I have scheduled, so we're going to sing one verse of 679, and our teachers are going to class, and I'm going to class right after this verse, right? Okay, 679. Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus, just to
unto thee, O Lord. Do I lift up my Is that on? Yeah, there it goes. Okay, good. I hope everybody is doing well tonight. We are happy that you're here, uh, that you're a part of this class. Of course, we've only got just a few more weeks left. And uh, I think about possibly we got the second and the ninth. The, yeah, we've got four more Sundays, don't we, after this Sunday uh, for our class. So we've got a lot to cover in a short period of time. And I hope that we will continue to uh, make progress that we need to make. At the same time, we want to take the time that we need to take on these important subjects. And again, I would appreciate your input. If you've got something you want to add or a question to ask for clarification, uh, please feel more than free to do so. If you want to come to me privately, uh, that would be fine as well. Uh, if there's something else you think that I need to say that I haven't or something that you disagree with, you come to me privately and I'll correct that. Uh, so just let me know. Of course, this particular lesson that we're talking about is having a happy marriage, a healthy marriage. And the first thing that we mentioned last week was the spiritual foundation. We talked about the importance of having God at the center of everything in our lives. Except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. And so we must have the foundation that is built upon God and the principles that are found in his word. And if that foundation is not there, uh, then the marriage is going to be rocky at best. The chances of success are very, very limited indeed. And so uh, one reason why we see marriages... Uh, just crashing it seems all around us is because they're not built on the proper foundation. Any other foundation is not going to uh, suffice. And so we spent some time on that. Then we switch gears just a little bit after talking about, you know, devotionals and uh, the spiritual aspects of, of having the kind of foundation that we need to have. We were beginning to talk about a healthy physical relationship and how that contributes to a happy marriage. And as the bell uh, rang last week, as we were concluded, we talked about and emphasized how that God made all of us as humans sexual beings. Not only did he make us sexual beings, but he made us moral beings as well. Now, I don't think you have to really listen very long or be all that observant to know that we live in a sex-crazed society. I don't know hardly of any product out there that people sell on television that they don't use sex to sell it. Uh, from cars to toothpaste to, to whatever you may buy, even dishwashing liquid, you know. Uh, it seems like that sex is used to sell that. Uh, we are indeed a sexualized society in many respects. And in a lot of respects, we become desensitized uh, to the world around us. Uh, things really don't shock us all that much anymore, I'm afraid. 
Uh, it doesn't take too long to watch television and you'll see the uh, homosexual themes, the little side themes, that still gripes me. Anytime that I found a decent show that I want to watch, they throw that in and ruin it, you know, right off the bat. Has nothing to do with the show or what, but, you know, just the issues of sexuality in general are all over the news politically and so forth. Now, the scriptures affirm that after completing his creative work, God evaluated his efforts, and in Genesis 1.31, he declared that all of it was good. And so the relationship, the sexual relationship between a husband and a wife is a very tender, intimate, beautiful, and sacred relationship. And it provides an avenue by which both partners can express their deep and abiding love and commitment to each other. We were talking about five biblical principles that couples need to remember and to embrace regarding their sexual relationship as we finished last time. First of all, sexual intimacy in marriage is good. We talked about that. The Bible says it's good. Uh, it's not taboo in any way whatsoever. Uh, secondly, we talked about how the sexual relationship in marriage is for pleasure. And we read Proverbs chapter 5, verses 15 through 20 that emphasize that. And then thirdly, the physical intimacy of that relationship is limited to the marriage relationship. Uh, sexual relationships outside of marriage is wrong and it's sinful. And it will cause one to lose his soul. It will condemn one for eternity. And uh, the Bible makes that very plain that it is limited to the marriage relationship. Paul told the Corinthians who were bombarded with this kind of sexual mentality, even you know, religious prostitutions dominated the worship of their ancient pagan gods. And he said, let every man have his own wife and let every woman have her own husband. That's how you're to deal with this particular issue. And then as we were dismissing, I brought up the fourth point for you to think about, and that is sexual intimacy is an overt expression of unselfish affection. It's an overt expression of unselfish expression. Now we know that a lot of our problems in life come as a result of being selfish, right? Uh, usually when there are problems in a marriage, it probably is because of selfishness. I know when I have conflict in my life many times, it's because I didn't get my way, you know. It's because of my own selfishness. Uh, instead, the Bible says we are to focus on the other person. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. And so when you think about sexual intimacy being an overt expression of unselfish affection, we always have the good of our partner in mind. That's the primary focus. It works both ways. And when we're trying to please the other person, and that's our supreme desire, then that's going to allow things to go much more smoothly and as they ought to, whereas if I just want my way or the highway and get what I want, then there may be resentment, uh, there may be regret and things of that nature 
uh, as the relationship and marriage proceeds. And then fifthly, the sexual relationship between husband and wife is not to be interrupted. If you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and uh, down at verse 5, the Bible says there, do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. And so the relationship between the husband and wife is not to be interrupted. Any comments on those five principles? Anything you want to add to that? Feel free to speak up. All right, let's talk about what a couple can do to enhance the physical relationship of their marriage. What can couples do? You know, a couple's sexual relationship, I think, can be greatly enhanced when they do a number of things. We're going to talk about these things. First of all, we need to let love... Uh, well, it's not going to be on there. I'm sorry. Y'all have to write these down. Uh, we need to let love be the pillar that supports their total relationship. Love has to be the pillar that supports that relationship. Now, we know that love is very important, and that love must manifest itself through acts of affection. That's phileo, uh, love, and also through expressions of concern for each other physically and spiritually, as well as emotionally, agape love. And so love has to be the pillar. There's phileo, acts of affection, and then there's agape love, where we uh, show our concern for the other partner, our partner, uh, physically, spiritually, and emotionally. And if love is the foundation, if love is the pillar uh, by which everything goes, then we're well on our way to having a healthy physical relationship. Secondly, though, we need to possess and manifest mutual trust and mutual respect for one another. You know, we could talk about Ephesians chapter 5, the relationship between husband and wife, as Paul talked about there, how that it compares to Jesus Christ and the bride. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. So ought a husband love his wife, even as he loves himself, and the wife see that she reverence her husband. And so when it comes to the relationship between Christ and his bride, there is a mutual respect there. Uh, we respect what our God has done for us. In the marriage relationship, there also has to be that mutual respect. Each partner must unequivocally trust or have the confidence that their spouse is going to be faithful to those marriage vows for life. Now, when a couple gets married... The wife or the husband ought never to have to worry if their spouse is being faithful when maybe one goes on a business trip, when one goes to work, or whatever the case may be. There ought to be that trust there. There ought to be that respect there, the confidence that that spouse is going to be faithful. And it's wrong to ever even 
meaningless, uh, you know, unintentionally maybe sometimes, leave the impression that opens the door to question that. You know, you think about, you know, communication on your cell phone. Uh, should a husband and wife be able to, to share each other's phones and whatever's information on there? Sure. I would recommend all of you, you know, both husband and wife have the passwords, you know, uh, if you do passwords and lock your phone, you know, they ought to both have that. You ought not to be uh, uh, disguising things or hiding things from each other. It needs to be open uh, between the husband and the wife. Luther? Don't give place to the devil. That's exactly right. Now, if I have the appearance of I, that I'm hiding something, and maybe I'm not, what is that going to do? To the spouse. See, I won't even leave a question mark about that, right? See? Uh, I need to make sure that my spouse has complete trust uh, in me as far as my sexual faithfulness goes. Malachi 2 and verse 15 talks about dealing treacherously with the wife of your youth. That's the word that means unfaithful. Don't, you, don't deal unfaithfully with the wife of your youth. I think a third thing that goes along this same line is we need to experience and exhibit total unquestionable commitment to each other. In the words of Genesis 2 and verse 24, we're to leave father and mother, cleave unto your wife or to your husband. There is a commitment there that's unquestionable. Uh, as, as committed as we may be to our mom and dad at home and to other people, our true commitment, our highest commitment, obviously must be to our spouse and it must be unquestioned. And then fourthly, communicate and share openly their feelings and their needs, desires, and pleasures. You know, we, if we have that love for each other, right? We have that mutual respect for one another. And if we are exhibiting total and unquestionable commitment to each other, then we ought to be able, without any hesitation, to communicate and share openly our feelings, our needs, the desires that we have, and the pleasures that we have. As both husband and wife try to fulfill uh, what would be best and what would be good for their spouse. Now, uh, as I finish this up on a healthy physical relationship, let's consider the importance of sexual faithfulness uh, to the happiness of the marriage relationship. I don't know how much time we're going to have uh, in these last four weeks. I hope to maybe spend quite a bit of time on Matthew chapter 19, 4 through 9, kind of breaking it down, but we'll probably get to some of that, if not all of that, uh, in the next few weeks, but uh, we need to consider the importance of sexual faithfulness to the happiness of the marriage relationship. You know, if we could turn over to Proverbs chapter 5, verses 15 through 23, you know, Solomon says, you know, listen, my son, listen to what I'm saying. He, he tells uh, his son how to be faithful to his spouse. He tells him some things to avoid. You avoid that particular woman, even though she has a mouth that's smoother than oil, 
Her end is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. You know, she may flatter this particular man, and uh, she may try to tempt him with her flattering words and some seductive uh, acts and so forth that uh, could take place maybe on the workplace where they find themselves like Joseph was in Potiphar's household. And so uh, we need to understand, according to Proverbs chapter 5, that the way to handle sexual temptation is not to stand there and pray about it or turn your Bible and read a few verses that will help you. Bible says you run. That's how you handle it. Flee fornication, right? 1 Corinthians 6, verse 18. Flee sexual immorality. Flee youthful lust. That's what Joseph did, right? You know, he didn't stand around to Miss Potiphar there and say, you know, we ought to talk this out a little bit, maybe get on our knees and pray, right? We, he got himself out of there. That's the way you handle it. You know, the Bible says God's going to make a way of escape, 1 Corinthians 10, 13, and sometimes what's the best escape? Two legs, the king's highway, and some hard running. That's what Joseph did, and that's how the Bible says to avoid this temptation. This is the one temptation you don't stand around and argue with. You get yourself out of that situation. Proverbs chapter 5 says... You stay away from that woman. You don't go near her door. You stay away completely. Uh, stay away from things that uh, would lead you away from the sexual faithfulness that you have with your spouse. In moral literature, we know that uh, internet pornography is epidemic. Even in the church today, it's very serious. And uh, as I've said, we're not dealing with this in the church as we ought to today. Uh, because it is an epidemic. You know, things are so easily accessible today, right? You know, back before cell phones and all this social media, man, you had to really put forth a little effort to go out and find some pornography, didn't you? Maybe you'd had to, you know, go out and avoid people, you know, looking as you go into some kind of adult bookstore. It was, it was a little more difficult, right? But now what's going on? Now there's easy access, there's privacy, all kinds of things that uh, allow you to have access to this really at the a drop of a finger. And you need to understand that the Bible says in Proverbs 5, you stay away from that kind of thing. And we could talk about more in relation to that, about how to deal with it, but we just don't have time right now. And so it's imperative that the married couple remember the vows they made each other and to God. You remember those vows? It says to keep ourselves under one another and to one another alone so long as you both shall live. In other words, as long as I'm alive and my spouse is alive, I will keep myself only under her. She will keep herself only under him so long as they both shall live. And so sexual purity must be maintained in the marriage relationship, regardless of one's maybe displeasure or dissatisfaction even with his or her spouse. I don't care uh, how much uh, displeasure you may think that is or how much dissatisfaction uh, you may consider yourself to be dealing with. Uh, you need to be true uh, to that pure sexual relationship with that spouse. Now in Proverbs, I should say, I meant First Thessalonians, let's turn to 
1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 3. Paul talked about this very thing right here. This is very important. Paul, of course, is dealing with the culture that I've talked about, the culture of, you know, the sexualization of everything, even religion. Paul said, for this is the will of God, even your sanctification. Now, first of all, all Christians are saints, right? Right? Uh, you hear about, you know, the Catholics, they may go through all this rigmarole to bring somebody to sainthood. Well, you ain't got to go through that. You're a saint. If you're a child of God, you're a saint. The word saint means what? Sanctified. Sanctified for a particular purpose, which is to what? To glorify God, right? Why were you made, we asked the kids? To glorify God. Uh, there may be other examples of sanctified things. I've got an Alabama hat at home that's sanctified, not because of what it's on there for, not what's on there, but because I only wear it on certain occasions when I'm going to the game. So see, in that sense, that hat is set apart for that particular purpose. I don't wear it to the mailbox. I don't wear it to Walmart. It sits there till I'm ready to go to the game. It's set apart for a particular purpose. And we're saints in that we're set apart for a particular purpose, and that's to glorify God. This building, there's nothing special or holy about the building, but it is sanctified in the sense that we meet here to worship, right? It's set aside as a place where we come and worship. Now, I need to understand, as a Christian, I am sanctified. I am sanctified for a particular purpose. And that purpose is very important. That purpose is to worship God. So Paul says, this is the will of God, even your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. He goes on to say in verse 4 that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. In other words, Paul says here, you need to learn to exercise self-control when it comes to the fulfillment of your lustful desires. And of course, he'll talk about too, you know, how every man had, ought to have his own wife and every woman ought to have her own husband. That's how we can control it. But it says that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. Then in verse 5, he gives a contrast to that. He said, not in the passion of lust, just like the Gentiles who do not know God. The Gentiles, they don't have an objective standard of, of the rightness and wrongness of sexual immorality. Uh, they'll think nothing wrong with having multiple sexual partners, even in their religious service to their particular God. Uh, you know, they don't know how to control their physical bodies, their attitude and their uh, motto in life is, if it feels good, do it. If I want it, I'm going to have it. No matter who it hurts, whatever I want is what I'm going to get. And then he goes on to say, why, in verse 6, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand, and solemnly warned you. Paul talked about this to these brethren, you know, because of my lust and my unchecked desire, you know, suppose I, I, I choose 
a brother in Christ's wife, right? And I'm not willing to control my sexual appetite. What have I done to him by taking his spouse and having uh, wrongful sexual relationships with her, see? I have wronged him. I've sinned against him and against God. Paul said, you think about what that means because God's the avenger, right? You know, I know my son when he was uh, in officer candidate school, uh, we went up to Quantico for the closing ceremonies and there were literally, I've never seen anything like it, thousands and thousands of the top men in the country that were going to be officers in the U.S. Marine Corps. I know my son told me one time, he said, he said, Dad, I don't know why anybody would ever want to go to war with us. You know, and I, I knew what he meant by that. You know, it'd be crazy. So, you know, here, here a nation may be afraid of our armed forces, but let me tell you something, we better be afraid of God. God's the true avenger, right? And Paul warned these folks here, if you don't control your own lust, if you don't control your own passions, it's not going to be a, an army of men uh, that are going to come and do you harm. God is the avenger. And uh, he says, I've told you about this before. In the verse 7, he says, for. When the word for there is in the Bible, it's there for a reason. And the, Paul says, the reason you need to uh, guard yourself and control yourself is for God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. We're to live holy lives. We're to live lives different from the world. And uh, he goes on to say, therefore, whosoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his holy spirit to you. And so this is very important information. This is not something uh, that we can just be casual about. Uh, we need to understand the seriousness of remaining sexually pure to our spouse. And so marital infidelity is a course that literally is strong with tragic, yea, eternal consequences. For example, a morally unfaithful partner gives his or her spouse the scriptural right to sever that relationship and remarry. Matthew chapter 19, 4 through 9, Whosoever shall put away his wife, except it be for fornication, and shall marry another, commits adultery. Whosoever marries her that is put away, doth commit adultery. And that's the only exception other than death that God allows for you to put away that spouse. Now, it doesn't say it's necessary. It doesn't say you have to. And I really only believe in the context of Christianity can one possibly forgive and maybe work through something like that. Uh, but you don't, you, you don't have to uh, put up with that. Uh, that gives you the right to put that individual away and to marry another. So that's serious. And also... One will be eternally lost unless they repent. The one who is sexually unfaithful to their spouse will be condemned eternally in hell unless that individual is willing to repent. All right, any questions or comments on that? We'll move on to communication. So, so far, we've talked about a spiritual foundation, right? If we get that right, somehow everything else is going to fall into place. After that, we've talked about how a healthy physical relationship contributes to a happy marriage. Now, here's where I've got a lot of fault on this next one. You know, I, I'll admit it. I'm not a good communicator at all. 
I'm, I'm really not. Uh, I guess I could blame that on uh, some things, you know, but uh, I'm just really not. I need to work on that. But communication contributes to a happy marriage. I might put it this way. You know, here's something romantic. When I look into your eyes, time stands still. That sounds pretty good, doesn't it? What if I said your face could stop a clock? Well, that's a little bit different, isn't it, right? You know, sometimes it's not what you say, it's how you say it, isn't it? And uh, communication is very, very important, and it's something that uh, I think we need to talk about quite a bit here. Uh, what is the purpose of communication in the marriage relationship? Let's think about that. You know, uh, if you watch the news, there is information that is communicated to you, right? The anchor there, uh, maybe a reporter there, maybe some graphics on the screen. Uh, it's the giving of information. But the purpose of communication in marriage is not simply for the giving and the receiving of information or even the answering of questions. Nor is communication in marriage mutually agreeing with each other. That's not a part of it either. Rather, communication in marriage is to renew and to maintain the vitality of the relationship. What does communication have to do with the vitality of the relationship? Anybody got any thoughts on that? Do you want to share? I'd like to interview this couple at Berea. We announced this morning they're celebrating 70 years of marriage. Uh, when I was at Del Rada, uh, Walt and Jean Spiro celebrated 74 years of marriage. I was, you know, I was kind of asking her, what's the secret to, the, to being married for 74 years? She said, she, she said he won't die. <laughs> so, uh, anyhow, they were joking about it. But, but there's got to be a, there's got to be a secret to that, right? There's got to be a secret to that. Uh, how do you stay married 74 years? You know, uh, I wonder what advice they would give. Communication that brings vitality uh, to the relationship. Also, uh, good communication in marriage is to convey information meaningfully and sincerely, I mean, in sincerity, ensuring its proper reception. You know, how do I know that I've understood clearly what my spouse is actually saying? Uh, reading between the lines is not, you know, men have a hard time doing that, right? Well, I, I thought I told them that. Well, what did you say? Well, that's not telling them that. You know, there's no way that person could decipher what you said from just what you said there, right? They're supposed to read between the lines, right? You know, uh, but this, it, it, it means that we try to convey information meaningfully and sincerely. Also, we assist each other in making good, responsible decisions. When it comes to a decision made for the family, we try to aid each other. We try to help each other when it comes to making the proper uh, decision that needs to be made. Also, good communication will synchronize our interests and our concerns. You know, what about our interests? What about our concerns about something? or maybe some member of the family. When we communicate like that, it helps us put on the same, puts us on the same page, right? When it comes to maybe one of our children or, or somebody else in the family, we need to be on the same page. And so the things that we're interested in, the things that we are concerned about uh, become uh, a partnership there 
when there's proper communication. And then the next one is it will achieve the unity that results in the attitude of we while not destroying the identity of you and me. There's still our own personal identities, but now it's more of we feel this way or we believe this way. And if you're a parent, you want to be on the same page, right? You know, kids will work you. They'll work you every time. Uh, and so you need to be on the same page and properly communicate uh, when it comes to things like that. It's important uh, to have good communication so that you can present one front. Now, let's ask the question, what hinders good communication in a marriage relationship? Let's think about that. What can stand in the way of a relationship and the communication aspect of it. I want to, uh, this is something I came across that was kind of funny. Uh, husband and wife had been married for 60 years and they had no secrets, no secrets at all except one. The woman kept in her closet a shoebox and she told her husband to never open this up for any reason whatsoever. But when she was on her deathbed and with her blessing, she allowed him to open that box. And what he found was, was a crocheted doll and $95,000 in cash. And she explained to her husband, she said, my mother told me that the secret to a happy marriage was to never argue. And she explained instead I should keep quiet and just crochet a doll. Anytime that I want to argue, I'm just going to crochet another doll. And her husband was touched by that. Only one doll was in the box, and that meant she had only been angry with him once in 60 years. But he asked, well, what about this 95000 What about this money? Oh, she said, that's the money I, I made from selling those dolls, you know. <laughs> so, uh, you know, we, we have to learn how to communicate effectively, and uh, I think that's important. So what hinders effective communication? First of all, a couple's overcommitment. Too much on the plate, too much on the schedule can hinder communication. You know, the Bible challenges us over in Ephesians 5, 5, 15, and 16 to be careful how you walk, making the most of your time. Now, what happens when our schedules are filled with so many urgent activities. We've got to be here, particularly young families, you know. Uh, our kids have so many activities at school. We've got to be here for this. We've got to be here for that. Uh, then we've got our own jobs. We've got our own unique responsibilities. And it just seems like that particularly husbands and wives never have the time to sit down and communicate. And so when we get so caught up in those things that are urgent, we tend to neglect those things that are most important, don't we, right? Those things that are really important. And so when we overcommit ourselves, then our communication with each other is often harmed. And in order for a couple to change this negative behavior, you have to learn to prioritize things. We need to place more emphasis on the important things versus those things that we consider to be urgent. And uh, once we can begin to reprioritize 
those things, then we're going to make progress. And so we need to set our priorities according to what's important, you know, with our communication and the implementation of our schedules so that uh, we can avoid uh, that hindrance. Secondly, a couple's unkind criticism of each other can hinder their communication. Now, if you turn over in your Bibles, I think it's Matthew chapter 7, down about, well, let's just start with verse 1 there for just a minute. Matthew 7, beginning in verse 1, I think all of us are familiar with this, but the Bible says, judge not that you be not judged. For with what judgment you shall be judged, and what, with what measure you use, it shall be measured to you again. Why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but don't notice the law that's in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when the log's in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, then you can clearly see to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Well, how does that apply to marriage relationship? Well, just generally speaking, from a Christian point of view, there's a way in which it's wrong to judge. Now, this is not saying that all judging is wrong because it isn't. The Bible says judge according to, a, to righteous judgment, not according to appearance. But there is a kind of judgment here that the, Jesus is talking about here, and that is the harsh, critical fault-finding that we're sometimes inclined to do uh, without knowing all the circumstances. If I state a fact to you, uh, let's just say so-and-so has not stopped drinking. That's not judging. That may be a fact, right? What if I say so-and-so's not even trying to stop drinking? He's not even putting forth the effort. I'm judging there, right? I'm judging his motives. And so when I start judging motives, then I get into some very shaky territory. And so when it comes to uh, the marriage relationship, we likewise need to uh, think about the unkind criticism of each other that can hinder our communication. Over in the book of Romans, uh, chapter 14, verse 10, uh, it talks about why do you pass judgment upon your brother? Why do you despise your brother? We're all going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, as I live, saith the Lord, every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess to God. So then each one of us shall give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. Now, a lot of people take Romans 14 out of context. Romans 14 is not dealing with matters of doctrine and objective truth. It's dealing with matters of opinion. When it comes to opinion, my opinion is just as good as yours, right? And yours is just as good as mine. And I need to respect your opinions. I don't need to jump down your throat and criticize you uh, just because I don't like your opinions. You know, for example, in the church today, elders sometimes have to make difficult decisions. I'll just say it this way. The Bible tells us to assemble on the first day of the week, right? Right? We have no option about that. Elders can't decide we're going to not worship on Sunday, but we're going to worship on Saturday or Monday. But what time do we meet for worship? When do we assemble together? That's a matter of opinion, isn't it? Right? Elders rule in matters of judgment. They don't rule in matters of doctrine. Matters of doctrine are already set. But when it comes to judgment, that's 
the areas in which elders rule. And when it comes to our relationship with elders, we have to respect those decisions, whether or not we may like them or not. I have no right to go out and criticize those decisions. Now, you apply that to the marriage relationship, we can have different opinions about some things and, you know, how we are going to deal with our children or, or this or that and the other. And uh, we shouldn't just criticize the opinion of our spouse, but we need to respect that opinion. And so criticism in marriage is a poor, ineffective way to manipulate change in another, and it can destroy a beautiful relationship. Now, if we're going to abort this destructive behavior, each one of us in the marriage must resolve to practice the golden rule. What's the golden rule? Matthew 7, 12. All things whatsoever you would that men should do unto you, do ye even so unto them, for this is the law and the prophets. What's the short version? Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. I want to ask you a question. What problem in this world today would not be solved by practicing the golden rule? Would there be war in Ukraine if people practiced the golden rule? Would there be murder if people practiced the golden rule? Would there be theft? Huh? No. Wouldn't be any problems at all, hardly, if we practiced the golden rule. And the golden rule says, I'm going to do unto you what I would want you to do for me if I were in your situation. That's going to solve all, there wouldn't be any problems in the church. Uh, you wouldn't find divorce, I don't think, for the most part in our world today if people practice the golden rule. Uh, how would the golden rule affect how parents teach, uh, re uh, how the parents treat their children? Think about that. Would there be any abuse of young children that's so tragic in our world today? No. Not if we practice the golden rule. And so we can get away from this destructive behavior by being overly critical if we'll practice the golden rule and the principles that uh, Jesus gave us here in uh, Matthew chapter 7, 1 through 5. Thirdly, though, a couple's misguided interest in material things can hinder communication. Now, I hate to say it, but it's true. Most couples, when they get married in this world, their number one goal in life is to get ahead, right? We're going to keep up with the Joneses, and we're going to pass them and destroy them on the way, right? You know, we've got to have the best jobs, whatever it takes to get ahead. You know, a lot of times young people want what their parents have right now. They think they can have it right now, right? Failing to realize those parents had to work for everything that they got. They had to build it. But, you know, we want instantly all these material things. Now, what happens when a couple is focused on material things? Are they going to struggle with contentment? Yes, they're going to struggle with contentment. They're going to get caught up in that trap of always wanting more. You know, Jesus talked about that rich fool in Luke chapter 12, right? The ground of a certain rich man brought forth plentifully. And he said with himself, what will I do? I'll tear down my barns and build greater. There I'll bestow all my fruits and my goods. And I'll say to myself, so you've got much goods later for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But that night God said to him, what? You fool. This night will your soul be required of you. And then 
whose are all these things going to be that you've provided? In other words, when our focus is on material things, our happiness is going to be tied to those material things. Our contentment's going to be tied to those material things. And Jesus said in Luke 12 and verse 15, a man's life does not consist in the abundance of the things that he possesses. In other words, my value, my worth, my goals in life cannot be attached to physical things. Who I am and what I am is not valued by the material things that I have. Those things are fleeting. Uh, all of you are owners of something, right? We have cars in the parking lot that we own. We have property that we own. Who's going to own those things in 100 years? You have any idea? Maybe some member of the family, perhaps. Or maybe they'll sell it, right, when you die. Make, get the money, you know. Uh, you don't know what's going to happen to your property. It's not yours. Everything we have in this world is temporal. Uh, one of my favorite verses is when Paul told the Corinthians, the things which are seen are temporal. The things which are not seen are eternal. That just simply means everything that we understand with our senses, our eyes, our ears, everything that I see. You can go outside no matter what it is. Everything without exception that you see is temporal. It's not going to last. It's not going to last. It's going to be burned up one day. Now, the things that are not seen are eternal. What are those things? Well, those are spiritual things, right? You know, our, our, our home in heaven. You know, Abraham looked for a city which hath foundations, whose builder and ruler is God. It's the spiritual things that are going to last. But it's hard for us as material people today to, to focus on spiritual things when the world pressures us uh, to have allegiance to those things. And so we need to understand that a couple's misguided interest in material things is going to cause the communication aspect of their relationship to diminish. And uh, they begin putting material things even before their marriage. Now, to conquer this besetting problem, a couple has to learn the grace of contentment live within their financial means. Paul said, I've learned in whatsoever state I am, therewith to be content, no matter what. I'm satisfied with what I've got right now. I'm not always wanting more. You know, sometimes the grass gets greener on the other side, but when you walk over there, right, it's not as green as it, you thought it was. So I'm going to stop right there, and uh, we're going to talk about a couple of more principles, or a few more principles that hinders a proper communication between now and uh, we'll talk about that next Sunday. So think about that. Things that might hinder good communication and uh, how to properly deal with those. Thank you very much for your attention. I appreciate it very much.